the startup ecosystem doesn't just have OKRs and benchmarks and things that the CEO and team need to do. They demand that things happen fast, that there's disruption, that the old way of doing things is challenged repeatedly, um, that you just don't get a buy by having been there the longest. And so, and so, you know, I really enjoy this private sector mentality and I unabashedly believe that it is how governments should be run. We should be just simply measured on how we are performing and delivering results um, to, to the citizens and to the taxpayers. And now from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. What does a day in the life of a big city's mayor look like? Today, we discuss that and more with our guest, Adrian Fenty. From 2007 to 2011, Adrian managed one of the most complicated and powerful cities in the world, Washington, D.C. As mayor, he focused on education reform and disrupting the status quo. Now, as a venture capitalist, he loves to see disruption and innovation all around him every day. Today, I asked him, what do the private and public sector have in common and how are they different? I was surprised by some of the answer and I think you will be too. Here's our conversation. Thank you for joining me this morning, Adrian. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's so nice to have you. I think you're the first uh, politician or mayor that is in our podcast. We always talk about healthcare, but I thought your uh, experience is quite really interesting and your view of the world is quite interesting. Um, can you tell us more about your background, how you, you your career goes from being a politician, mayor, and where you are today? Glad to, glad to, excited to. Thanks for having me. Um, so just like some people would have a time frame. So, um, I started in politics in 2001, right? So, uh, 21 years ago. So I started out as a city council member, uh, in Washington, DC, did one and a half terms there and then was mayor of Washington, DC for one term from 2007 to 2011. When I lost my reelection, um, I was I was uh, excited to start a new chapter, which for me meant uh, working in the private sector, which is something I had really not done that much of, certainly not uh, not for very long. Um, so I so I I just started doing a little bit of everything, and the seminal um, first job was working for Rosetta Stone, which was a Washington D.C area-based uh, educational technology company. Um, I then actually started doing some other consulting work for EverFi. And so I worked with those two education technology companies in 2011 when I left office. And when I, when I, um, when I started working with those bigger ed techs, the, the DC tech startup scene uh, kind of took note and a few uh, startups asked me to work with them either as an advisor, as a consultant, or, 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 or anything I could do to be helpful. 
and uh, and through that, I really got got really interested in startups. Um, I had various different reasons to come to Silicon Valley, which is a place I'd never been to uh, before, and then just started meeting a lot of people. And um, one thing led to another. Uh, I met Mark Andreessen. Uh, I became an advisor for Andreessen Horowitz. Uh, it was early enough in their fund that I, you know, was lucky to go to Dior Review and go to all GP pitches, uh, where I just learned from uh, some of the best investors in the business. And after being there for four and a half years, I was excited to start my own fund. In 2017, I started M Ventures with uh, Mike Palink and Charles King. We did two small funds, 2017, 2018. And then 2019, we, uh, we merged, uh, with, uh, Marlon, uh, Nichols. Um, he was running a fund called Cross Culture Ventures. Uh, we then raised a $110 million fund, which we kind of, uh, executed on for three years. And then now we're raising, um, that fund too. That's so that brings us all the way up to March 31st. Yeah. 2022. You kind of captured such a, a very, uh, in a few minutes, talking about 21 years. Um, I remember when you were mayor. I left out a couple of details. Yeah. <laughs> I remember when you were mayor, I think you made a lot of effort to make a lot of changes, especially in the education. I think there's a lot of controversy where I feel like uh, the impact. I think sometimes being a politician, you make the changes, people don't see the results right away. And then people get upset about the changes, but I feel like now you've seen more of the impact of what you've done. Tell us, can you tell us more about that, how you go through that process? Sure. All right. So yeah, all right, get ready for a uh, strap in, get ready for a ride. Um, cause, Cause that's kind of what education reform is. All right. So, so again, I was elected in 2006, Washington, DC. Um, it was no secret. <laughs> The Washington DC, despite being the nation's capital of the United States of America, had objectively, uh, the worst, um, urban school system in the country. It may, may be one of the worst urban, rural, or, uh, or suburban. Uh, and this was in test scores, graduation rates, dropout rates, facilities, immunization shots, teachers getting paid, you name it. One amazingly glaring example is, uh, the year before I was elected mayor, 2005-06, during that winter, 17 of our schools were closed down for a period of weeks. It may have been more than that, but I'll, I'll be conservative in the number because it's that's egregious enough. They were closed down because it got cold enough in the D.C. winter that the heating systems were overpowered and uh, the kids we couldn't allow the kids to go to school for their own safety. I mean, this is... Like this was 2005, six in the nation's capital, and we were closing schools for weeks on end because we hadn't done the necessary work to keep them heating. Um, this was one example of an atrociously run school system. And one school system, uh, there was an example of an atrociously lack of dedication, uh, to education in our country. And so, and so I was elected, it was what I call the CEO of Washington, D.C. I was elected to run our city and make it the most fabulous city in the, in the world to draw on its potential. So for me, 
to oversimplify it, which is kind of how I like to do things, is either we we had to fix our school system. If we fixed our school system, we would be the best city in the world. And if we didn't fix our school system, really, then there was nothing we could do that would make our city amazing. Because you can't be an amazing city if you don't educate the kids who live in that city. So we set out on a path to do so. Michael Bloomberg was then the mayor of New York. Uh, he became a very unofficial mentor of mine, particularly around education reform. And he said, listen, you know, if you really want to fix things, you need to get rid of this, this school board system where you have everybody in control, essentially having no one in control. So he recommended what he and Richard Daly had done, which was to take over the school system. In the history of the Western Hemisphere, there's only been three mayors, North, Central, and South America and probably in Europe, where, where the mayor has run the school system. So Chicago did it, then New York did it. And my very first piece of legislation when I became mayor of Washington, D.C., was a bill to the city council. Literally, when I walked in, my first day of job, bill to the city council to take over the school system and have a report to me, the mayor, so that either the school system was improved and, you know, everything would be better for the kids, or if it wasn't, hold me accountable. And so we introduced that and on, and they passed the city council by April. And on June 12th, 2007, I took over the school system of Washington, D.C. and appointed Michelle Ree, uh, who was the best person in the country to, to turn around a school system as the chancellor. And we began a series of reforms that while unpopular were the type of tough decision making the school system had not enjoyed. My entire time living in Washington, D.C., which at that point was 37 years, uh, I can talk about lots of controversial decisions we made, which set up, up, up the reform that you talked about. But a lot of things that get overlooked were addressing like those boiler and air conditionings. When, I, when, we made, when we took over the school system the year before, there were kids who weren't allowed to go to school for months on end because they, had, they hadn't got the immunization shots. Uh, and I know you guys care a lot about health care. But that's like a management and administrative issue. Also, teachers hadn't been paid. Teachers would start the school year and not get paid for like weeks just because it was so, it was so poorly mismanaged. Uh, okay. Closing with this. Um, so since we made some of those tough decisions, which I'm happy to get into or we can change something. DC school system has been the fastest improving uh, urban school system in terms of objective criteria like tests, graduation rates, placement into college in the country. We are still going not as fast as anybody would want us to go, and particularly the kids and the parents, but it is good that we have outpaced the rest of the country in the rate of improvement. Yeah, no, I think I definitely see that. Uh, my late husband's family is in D.C., so I have a niece and nephew who uh, now is in high school. So they got to benefit the changes that you make. It's always sometimes it takes a while to see that impact of the changes. And of course, the beginning of changes is always really difficult for everybody because nobody likes to change. So learning from that experience, and as you know, uh, change oftentimes is needed. And being working in a startup, uh, working with founder, CEO, what lessons that you learned from trying to make, of course, the scale is so different being running a city versus running a company, but people are still people. What are the things that you learned from that that you can um, 
provide some insight for um, CEO funds? Yeah. No, I have a lot to say on this, uh, so I'm glad you asked. Okay, so so first of all, you know, in in the government, the problem is there are not really like benchmarks and standards. You know, in Silicon Valley, we, we use you know acronyms like OKRs, right? Uh, it, these are things that have no mention at all in local, state, federal governments. It's literally. Actually, the number one thing that gets mentioned is how much money are you spending on an issue? Go to any hearing, federal or local, and the way that the, the way that the community judges how the government, how good of a job they do is by how much money we spend on things. It's completely archaic and backwards. In the private sector, you know, a CEO has to get things done. Okay. So that's the private sector versus the public sector in general. Then you have, then you have the startup ecosystem quote-unquote Silicon Valley, but obviously now it's everywhere. New York, Austin, LA, Seattle, Miami, and other places. The startup ecosystem doesn't just have OKRs and benchmarks and things that the CEO and team need to do. They demand that things happen fast, that there's disruption, that the old way of doing things is challenged repeatedly, um, that you just don't get a buy by having been there the longest. And so, and so, you know, I really enjoy this private sector mentality and I unabashedly believe that it is how governments should be run. We should be just simply measured on how we are performing and delivering results, um, to, to the citizens and to the taxpayers. Yeah. I think that's, again, changing that mindset that it's a task on its own, probably. Would you be interested in taking that? job again <laughs> well two things i mean or tons of things but i'll start with just two, two things one is i i love white there's nothing better that you can do than serve other people like there's really in your in our lives the only thing that we should ever judge ourselves about how many people we help and i had the amazing opportunity through 10 to 12 years in public service to help lots of people whether it was in the school system and in the homeless or in juvenile justice or child welfare. And it wasn't me, of course. I was just the top manager. There was really dedicated people who worked under me way down who did these things. And there's nothing more rewarding. And, and every day, every day I was in office, someone in some way or another thanked and showed appreciation. And so there's nothing better they can do. And so, so I, relished it and i'm a political junkie so i could i could actually do it forever but i didn't think it was i don't think it's healthy to have career politicians i wish we didn't have this situation where politicians serve for 10 20 30 40 years i don't know why they don't get out of the way and let other people in and they don't have to just retire but be so disruptive that that you make it uncomfortable for yourself to be in office that's that's your job just don't sit around and be you know, politically expedient so you can stay there longer and keep getting reelected. I don't, I literally don't understand this and, and it infuriates me. So, so what I choose, what I'm more excited about is bringing new people in the office. You know, Bobby Kennedy said that politics is really for the young. It's really for, you know, the idealistic and the people who have energy. And of course, Bobby Kennedy was a 36 year old attorney general. But, but this is another lesson, you know, that, that I, I appreciate 
in the tech ecosystem is no one is afraid to turn things over to younger people who are smart because who knows what will happen. And, and so, and so I, I, I do want to see that there, there are some really great mayors in, in the country. And I was just having conversation with someone yesterday. I mean, our mayor in DC, Atlanta, Cleveland, Baltimore, there's probably a longer list, which is really exciting. Um, Constant disruption, constant turnover. I would never want to be a career politician just because I know that humans just kind of, we plateau. Yeah. I think the same thing when you look at innovation and technology, you see a large company, they tend to work on the area, the, the market share that they have maybe grew a little bit incrementally. The disruptive come from the startup and the new innovation that is a different set of people looking at the problem differently and willing to take on the risk that uh, established. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's really amazing. Like, you know, so here's here, people ask me, like, what is the difference between, like, you know, Washington, D.C. and Silicon Valley? What they really mean between politics and tech. And I, I tell this, there's a lot of, there's a lot of differences, but there's a lot of similarities also. So, like, what, a funny example is, if you walk in a startup, and you walk in a campaign office, they look exactly the same. Like they're usually uh, a really kind of nondescript building with cubicles, laptops, and ridiculously young, smart, idealistic people, human beings, right? Boom. So this is the start of politics and the start of the tech ecosystem, right? The difference is in politics, once the principal gets elected, the shift immediately changes towards re-election or that becomes a huge part of uh of of how decision making is made where in this in the startup or business ecosystem you know once you you've never totally made it. you're always you know trying to find the next great idea the next new hire you, there's always iteration there's always pivots uh and so the and so in one case the smart idealistic you know, young, energetic people become more politically expedient and careful and stop making tough, disruptive decisions. But in in the purest form of the, the business community, which I tend to think is, a, is the startup ecosystem, you you actually get rewarded for being disruptive and 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 making changes. I mean, this is this is why the top four or five companies in in that uh, you know in in the marketplace are all tech companies because they've figured out a way to, to, to disrupt themselves. You think then the incentive is not aligned then on the government side? Then I think that's a terrific way of saying it. I think, I do think another thing too. So I, I think that's true, but I, I want to place blame at the number one people uh, who should take blame, and that is the citizenry, okay? We have a job to do. We have an obligation to hold people accountable. And hold our elected officials. They are our elected officials. They weren't born in in our country. No one's born mayor, president, governor, or anything. They were just citizens who ran and became politicians. We do a not-so-great job of holding them accountable. We do a not-so-great job of demanding more turnover. We do a not-so-great job in really exposing and holding people's feet to the fire, you know, and so I would, that is on us, 
And, you know, politicians have plenty of blame, but we will, the citizenry are always to blame more. You know what I mean? I was a citizen before I ran for office. I made a very uncomplicated decision to run for office. I decided that I was not going to be able to sleep with myself if I didn't run against the incumbent uh, who was on, who was in my city council district. It was That's literally my exact thinking of it. Uh, and I use that just as an example. People who are fed up with the system, people who aren't seeing what they want, they have to get involved. I mean, if you're not going to run yourself, work for somebody else's campaign. I think people always also oftentimes got busy with their own life and not thinking that maybe other people can help solve that problem and they don't they don't I think, have what, the power I think that's true. I think power. what happens is I see this in on Twitter all the time. You start to see the politician as like somehow a a, a fixture rather than someone who, who should be the best person that we have in a job. So and so we start to like we like we accept wildly bad performance from politicians. So we're, and we're just rail and yell. Stop yelling. Stop railing. Stop tweeting. You know, go do something about it. It's, it's your right to that job as much as it's the, the politicians. And so when we do that, then we settle for really bad politicians. And when you settle for really bad politicians, then you have crisis and homeless or education or re- other really serious things. This podcast is sponsored by Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping med tech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, Turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. I want to uh, shift our conversation a bit to your work now uh, at the Mac Ventures. And so can you tell us more about uh, what's, uh, what your focus is? You, you invest in a lot of different things, but it's what your true vision on the venture side besides the commercial, I mean, the, the for-profit yeah. aspect of things. No, so again, so I started at Andreessen in September 2012, uh, which is now amazingly almost 10 years ago. Um, so Andreessen Horowitz is, is famous for a lot of things. Um, but by the time they founded their fund in 2009, there were some principles around tech investing, which made sense. And I think they did an amazing job at really focusing on those things as much, or maybe more than any other venture capital fund had done. So it was, you know, it was having a technical founder who would be a, a, a long-term CEO, having a technical team, investing in software companies, as Mark said, software is the world, you know, really a, a real passion for engineering because engineering would be able to scale and, 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 and pr- provide a moat which could defend against competitors and copycats. And then, and then really their, you know, their, their amazing contribution to the world of, of the startup ecosystem is building a market development team that was even bigger than the investing team. So the market development team helps companies have to invest. So these are the types of things that we have brought over to Mac Venture Capital. We love, you know, enterprise software. We love to invest in a technical team, usually you know, two, two or three te- technical founders, if possible. 
Um, and from there, you know, we're, we're agnostic as to the vertical. So we have software companies that, are, that do, that are in, in, into climate change. We have software companies that are in fintech and crypto. We have software companies, uh, that are in health tech or, or aerospace. Uh, and we even along the line have found some amazing teams in deep tech and hardware and, uh, and on the, on the consumer side. But the lion's share of what we do is invest in enterprise software companies. Most of our deals, because our team is in California, both in LA and, and Silicon Valley, uh, are in California. We found some amazing companies in New York, in Seattle, in Texas, in, in Florida, um, and, and a couple internationally. And, and we invest at the seed stage. We usually are the biggest or second biggest check in a, in a, in a seed round. Yeah. And so, of course, many of our listeners are interested in the healthcare side. You definitely invest in um, the healthcare uh, side of thing. Uh, one of the companies that I mentioned earlier uh, is Sporo Health that, that came through our program as well. Um, can you tell us more about the healthcare side of investment that Mac Ventures uh, are interested in? I know, like for the Sporo, for example, from and Mommy, focus on uh, serving a lot of the uh, BIPOC. Color community. Yeah. Is that? Oh, I'd love to. Area? Well, again, so our focus is software and then important verticals where, where great technical founders can build important impactful companies. So without a question, that's healthcare because, uh, there's, there's so much, it's so much, it's so important to humanity and, and society, but also important for us as investors. There's really big opportunities there. So, Spore Health, which you mentioned, uh, is, is, uh, is enterprise software, which can help Fortune 500 companies have better healthcare systems, structures, and frameworks for their African American employees. This is fantastic. So just take your random huge, you know, uh, private sector company, which has, you know, hundreds and maybe even thousands of African American employees who are all uh, getting, you know, uh, healthcare through your, through your payer. When I was mayor, this, this really combines both my worlds. So I really, really appreciate Squirrel. When I was mayor, Washington DC, uh, you know, was, I think the largest majority minority country, in, uh, a district in the country. We were 70, 60 to 70% African American. And so there are some healthcare, uh, issues that affect the African American community much greater than they do other communities uh, of, uh, in America, uh, heart disease, uh, hypertension, cancer, things of, of, of this nature, different types. Um, and so, and a lot of it is various different things that proper health care could help to extend the life uh, of, of people in the African-American community. So these are the tenets around how Spora Health is helping payers and Fortune 500 companies be better able to provide healthcare for their employees. We invested in a company called Provida, uh, which is an LA-based um, enterprise SaaS company. Uh, what they what they are doing is building an oncology software company. So, if you or your family member you know have been diagnosed for for cancer, there are there's a laundry list of of things that the doctor and the nurses and the whole team need to keep track of. Um, and, uh, our, this husband and wife team, which are, which are terrific is building a company around 
managing all of those things uh, that doctors and, and nurses have to keep track of, which is better for being organized, but better for healthcare outcomes. Because if you are able to keep track of every all the care that's being offered for someone uh, who has different types of cancer, then you will be able to provide better care. And and we have other examples, um, but all of them fit this kind of combined, important, impactful combination and, and also enterprise software. Yeah. And the other thing that I also noticed on your portfolio is mommy. And again, that's yeah. um, supporting women and mothers. Yes. Mommy is a terrific company. I That was a company that my partner, Marlon Nichols, invested in prior uh, to uh, to when we merged and set Mac up. So I don't know that company as well as I know Spore Health or Provita. But I will say it comes up so often and uh, and so many people uh, are, are really excited by what they've been able to help people with. Yeah, that's exciting. I, 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 it's your portfolio company. It's really uh, have a good group there. Yeah, and, yeah, and there's others, but we, we don't have infinite. Time. Yeah, right, exactly. You have quite a bit there. Um, I know we're running short of time. I uh, just want to make sure that I ask you this question. From all your experience running as a mayor, being a mayor, and now doing the fun and helping a lot of the company, what are the lessons learned that you feel is important for anybody who wants to start a healthcare company can learn from? Well, I mean, I'll go back to the principles that kind of cover all startups. You know, it's so we like to, you know, and, and, and Andreessen and, and other firms have said this. You know, the be- best firms look for founders that have kind of an earned secret. Um, so it's it's not just being technical or, you know, being amazing or even having a great idea. It's kind of how did you come to to want to do this? Because if you have a passion for something, then you will you will not let obstacles get in your way. <laughs> and startups, I mean, every day in this in a startup life, there's somewhere between you know ten and a hundred obstacles that come up. And it's just that's what you just have to deal with. But if you're passionate about it, if you have an earned secret, um, like Dan at Spore Health or Victor and Shirley at Provita Health or we invested in a company called Rima Health, which is helping to bring people who are who are Medicaid eligible but disconnected, um, literally from from Medicaid back on to Medicaid, so that they can get proper healthcare. And they do it through a really innovative way of text messaging software, and then using human beings to do outreach. You know, the, the founder there, Justin Lay, you know, grew up in an environment where. You know, his family didn't have everything where they relied on the government. And so he wants to see, you know, better health care for people who, you know, otherwise are, are not going to get it. So, but, and I know when we invest in Justin, like, you know, having heard his personal story, I knew that he's the kind of guy that is not going to let any obstacle get in his way. So those are just kind of a little bit add on things that we look for. I think sometimes uh, we always hear the story about you need to find your passion, but not everybody know what that passion is. <laughs> I yeah. always feel like everybody is like, I think that's passion? right. What is that? How do you, you know? Wow. I mean, so you're getting right, you're getting right kind of like 
one of the things that I've always loved about about both of my last couple of professions. So for some reason, I've always believed that you know when someone like knows what they're doing, like five minutes into talking to them. You know what I mean? You just, I mean, they just, you could tell they know where they're going. They know where we all should be going. And, and, and all they need is people to, to back them in. I've always thought this, even since I was a teenager. When I, when I became mayor, and I had this story that I tell in some of my speeches. So whenever you get uh, elected to something or in a new job, everyone has a lot of advice. So I get elected. People are giving me all kinds of advice, hundreds of people a day. So I, I was on, I was on a trip to New York. Uh, and I hadn't even sworn in yet. And so I was stopped in to see Mayor Bloomberg. And I was like, listen, I'm getting all this advice. My head's spinning a little bit. You're doing the job now. You tell me what is, what are the, my, what should be my highest priority to make sure that Washington DC is the most amazing city that, that I can make it. And he looked at me and I, he could tell that I didn't need to hear any long speeches. And he said, hire great people. And, and so this was late 2006. And so then, you know, fast forward to September 2012. I was you know, lucky enough to, you know, again, become an advisor in Jason Horowitz. We're in one of our deal reviews or so. And like everyone's going around, okay, these are the strengths of the company. These are the weaknesses of the company. And one of the strengths of the company, you know, was that it had an amazing founding team. And I remember Mark saying so clearly, we invest in great people. And it just, when he said that, it really just became clear to me that like the same things that were like the predominant, most important things in, in being a, a mayor, uh, or a public CEO was the same things that were important in being a venture capitalist or being a startup CEO. You have to hire great people. And that is, both the similarities of those two things and kind of what we focus a huge part of our day on and what our founders focus a huge part of their day on. Yeah, I think it's uh, oftentimes, sometimes we, especially when, you know, you're working on something that technical, very sciencey stuff, then we, we all tend to think that is the most important part, but all the people, the leadership, those are the soft skills. But that can help you make or break whatever that you're working on. Yeah, I mean, and you, you, I mean, you can just see the energy, the the, the aptitude, and 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 what I love about the tech ecosystem is in in, the, in our great in our founders, they have a vision. You know, you, you can call it kind of a vision of the future. Uh, but in, as part of that, it's a vision for how they and their company will help to to build that future. And it's it's not only important or fascinating, but it's fun. Well, that's great. Well, thank you so much. I feel like it's... Uh, You're welcome. This was the easiest... I know this was the easiest podcast you ever set up. Yeah, no, no problem scheduling it. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> so I'm so glad that we finally connect, and it's so great to hear your insight for uh, for everybody to uh, hear. And I think they, thank, everybody can learn. Thank so you for today. having me, and thank you guys for being advocates of better healthcare. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. 
We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.